Hello and welcome to episode 26 of Blokeology, evidence-based health, fitness and lifestyle for men. So I'm Dr. Ewan Lawson and today I've got an interview with Phil Kane. Now, so Phil Kane's a journalist who's um, he's done some incredible work um, around alcohol. So I'll, I'll tell you a little bit more about Phil in a minute. So just before we get into that, I thought I would just... Um, Welcome anyone back who's been listening already and um, also say hello to any new listeners that we've got. And just a reminder that if you're new, you're very much welcome. Blokeology, really, what it's all about is um, it's about looking at the evidence, thinking a little bit about how it relates, trying to unpick the evidence and understand it a little bit, and in particular related to men's health. And some of those kind of, and I'm thinking, obviously, I'm thinking particularly about men thir- age 30, 40, 50, but... I think there are lessons here for men of all ages and there are lessons for, I've absolutely no doubt, for women in terms of how to live a healthier, more aware life in terms of the evidence and doing things which make sense. Our brains are particularly good at conning us. So um, if you've not already, please do consider um, jumping on board and getting involved a bit more with the show with the regular newsletter. And you can find that at www.blokeology.io forward slash journal. Do sign up and I can send you... um, uh, the Healthy Bloke Action Plan, if you want. But the main point is just to get involved with the show. I'm really grateful for your support. Uh, and the newsletter is just a way of sort of tying us together and, and making sure that we've all creating a nice little community where we can share some of this evidence around. So let me tell you a little bit more about Phil. Now, Phil Kane is a journalist, and really, he's had a he lives out in Austria, but he's um, originally from Manchester in the northwest of England, obviously. And he um, has written for places like media like BBC, The Economist, Telegraph, Observer. And in particular, he had an interest in Southeast Europe and around the Balkans, you know, a place where there's a complex um, political and social um, set of problems. And uh, interestingly, he sort of drew some parallels with alcohol in that regard. And he was casting around looking for a new area to get into. And he's really doing some incredible work, piecing together some of the evidence. He's brought his journalistic expertise and that evidence all together into a book that he has published uh, called Alcohol Companion. Uh, And I certainly heartily recommend it if you want to um, get a fantastic overview of an, an incredible number of areas related to alcohol. And I think if you're not a medic, if you're not a doctor, there's a there's a ton of information here and I think if you are a medic, there is also equally as much information, um, something that we don't do particularly well across the medical profession as a whole is deal with alcohol. Um, I think this, this gets mentioned in the interview that actually doctors, certainly general practitioners, and um, I've no doubt that this is repeated across other specialities, are not great about asking about alcohol and there's a whole social layer. And I think we were very wary in this interview that we didn't want to come across as killjoys and they were just moaning about alcohol. But I think if you want to take an evidence-based approach to your health and fitness and your lifestyle, you need to look long and hard at alcohol. It's the the kind of the way that it cons your brain, the way that it kind of it, we interact with it um, deserves considerable scrutiny. So um, let's get on with the interview. First of all, I started by asking Phil to tell us a little bit more about how he got into it. Yeah, good question. I mean, as, as I say, I'd written this, uh, I'd been writing about the region uh, of, of uh, Southeast Europe, particularly uh, former Yugoslavia. And, uh, you know, just from a career point of view, I'd sort of run out of uh, uh, steam to a certain extent in that the uh, the region had become less interesting to, to uh, you know, English speakers. So, um, yeah, I was looking around for a new a new topic. 
And yeah, this is a sort of a science subject, which <clears throat> also, you know, stretches into sort of commerce and business responsibility and, uh, you know, has a, has a, obviously a very clear sort of social aspect to it as well, which, which intersects with some of the stuff I've done in the past about, um, corporate responsibility and, and, and I'm a, I'm a mathematician by, uh, by sort of academic. I, I did a degree in mathematics. I have a scientific bent. So yeah. it kind of takes a lot of, a lot of boxes all at the same time. And also that as it, as it progressed, the, the, the project also <clears throat> kind of intersected with the, the experience of doing, um, uh, work in the Balkans in that there, are, you know, it's a very mushy subject with no sort of clear cut sort of, uh, yes and no answers to most questions. And, and yeah. uh, actually that experience of the political complexity of the Balkans kind of <clears throat> gave me, uh, an, uh, maybe a little bit of a, uh, an opportunity to look at this subject, uh, in a way which, uh, didn't polarize my audience in a way. Um, so yeah, that was, yeah. It, it just ticked a, a whole lot of boxes. And I suppose from a, you know, journalistic point of view i thought well it would if it interests me and it probably interests many of the people around me then hopefully there is an audience who might benefit from it yeah i think it's um oh i think i i wholeheartedly agree about all those things that it's a you know it's complex it's you know from the social cultural political that kind of corporate responsibility the industry side links are so murky Mm -hmm. it's curious because most people who get into or advocate for it and obviously you're very passionately advocating for um you know to improve health I mm-hmm. often have a personal element as well, but that doesn't seem to be the case with yourself. You know, in uh, terms of involvement with alcohol or damage, you know, have perhaps, you know, a lot of people in this arena might have been previously alcohol dependent or have had very particularly yeah. checkered pasts. Yeah, I don't, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I live in the real world and like everybody else of my sort of era, uh, you know, I've, I, it's not like I've, I think basically everybody is, is affected to it yes. to some extent and I'm no sort of different. Yeah, that, you know, first first hand experience, second hand experience. It's all it's all there with me. But uh, I think one of the things I tried to do with this book was to, you know, provide some. I think first hand accounts have an awful lot of uh, of positive um, benefits for people who are reading them. But at the same time, I think uh, also something that uh, is 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 to uh, also useful is to sort of pull the camera back and look at this topic from afar and see yourself and and other people in context in a, in almost a sort of, yeah, in a scientific way and say, okay, this, are, these are very individual experiences as we all living our own individual life, but they do fall often into a pattern of, of, uh, experience. So yeah, from that point of view, I thought, you know, introducing my own uh, experiences beyond, you know, that, that, uh, you know, through the uh, way I tell the story, I thought might actually distract from, yeah. you know the actual purpose of of, of the exercise which is to you know, provide a broader context for people yeah and i, I think that's a, I, I actually it's, it's certainly no criticism in any shape or form i think it's really useful for to have a different perspective that kind of that that journalistic angle that you're bringing actually mm. i think is really valuable and it's just kind of it's an additional it's an important voice so it doesn't just look like and it cuts into some of the things you describe in the book that anybody who goes on about alcohol is just a terrible you know it's somehow just some terrible killjoy is this sort of social knee-jerk reaction. And so, you know, someone then who's been damaged or particularly affected by it, actually what's important are the facts and the evidence here. And that's very much, you're you're really able to bring that quite strongly. Yeah, there's, there's, I think, uh, as it does say in the book, there is a kind of, uh, you know, a tribal element to it and, and, you Mm -hmm. know, which side are you on kind of uh, thing. And, and, you know, the reality is that, uh, yes, there are sides, you know, uh, 
in the sense that uh, you know people either drink or don't drink. But in fact, you know, there's a huge sort of grey area in between of people who are uh, occasional drinkers, regular, mm. steady drinker. You know, it's, it's statistically speaking, you've read the book, is not mm. a, uh, a black and white uh, situation, and there are people who uh, quite clearly go from one extreme to the other, and uh, there are people who, you know are kind of in the middle ground for their entire lives. You know, it's not, it's a fluid and, and never changing situation for individuals and as a, as a whole. So, yeah, and I, you know, that's, that's part of the story. And I suppose, you know, I, I, I think it's important to not get too, uh, you know, stuck on static descriptions of, uh, yeah. of, of people. Yeah. Including myself. I, I, you know, I think in a way categorizing myself as, as in categorizing anybody else would have, would be a little bit misleading in that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you take from one year to the next, people are different. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so one of the things I really hope we can do today is just actually folk who are listening, get a little bit of a feel for, think about their alcohol, think about, be if, you, if the, most people are generally aware of the harms, but they often are, you know, sometimes think it's slightly abstracted and they don't think it applies to them. They don't appreciate mm-hmm. some of the ways that it kind of is permeates through us. One of the, so one of the first things I want to ask you about, and this was, the, and I know you've been talking about this recently, um, mm-hmm. was about the the no safe level of alcohol drinking kind of. Um, uh, yes, I'm not going to say controversy because I'm not sure it is that contro- controversial, but it's that sort of topic and discussion. I know you were talking about this in the BBC recently, and mm-hmm. it relates back to the Lancet pe- paper and what your views are on that kind of the a little bit. Tell us a little bit about that paper and what your conclusions were from that. Yeah, I mean the Lancet paper. I'd say you know it it, it made a, a very uh, big uh, impact in the media, and I, obviously I welcome uh, that. And that, but in, from a sort of the perspective of, of the sort of uh, progression of the evidence, and and uh, you know uh, it, it added to you know basically what is already encapsulated in the uh, UK guidelines, which is that um, you know that the, the, there are risks even below the self um, uh, the the uh, the 14 unit a week uh, guidelines. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, the, the the fact is that those risks are low, but, um, uh, you know, the, the lower you go, and obviously zero alcohol intake is the, the lowest uh, level of al- alcohol intake you can you can have. Uh, the risks are the, the lowest, but, you know, below 14 units a week, we're really talking about very uh, uh, tiny levels of risk. Yeah, um, but I think I think from the point of view of people who are looking to change their drinking behaviour, uh, sorry, it sounds, it sounds rather sort of pejorative there. But if people are, <laughs> are trying to to drink below the the, the fourteen unit limits, a lot of people find it easier. Uh, and statistically, this you know is also borne out to to drink no alcohol is easier than drinking you know trying to moderate if you are somebody who tends mm. to overdo it basically. Uh, yeah. So. I think the the study basically gives some reassurance uh, and substantial reassurance to people who decide I don't. I, I think it's better for me not to drink at all. That they're not somehow having uh, doing themselves some minor disservice in terms of their health. Uh, in fact, they're actually you know getting a fractionally better sort of statistical yeah. um, health outcome than than people who drink you know one or two drinks a week. So yeah, that's it's a reassurance really more than anything else that the UK guidelines are something worth uh, sticking to and, and, and not worrying about if you happen to take them um, as a reason to, to drink nothing. Yeah, I think it feeds, it feeds back into that kind of the evidence that often appears has appeared in the media on a regular basis that a little bit of alcohol might be reducing your mortality in some way or reducing your risk. But actually this kind of 
there have probably been slightly more isolated studies than I know. I know there is still a little bit of discussion around this in the community, and yeah. certainly I've seen a I've seen a paper that it might there might a small amount of alcohol might reduce cardiovascular risk to some extent, like yes. by a very small amount. But the problem isn't overall mortality, and I think I, the chief medical officer, mm. Professor Dame Sally Davis, if I all get all yeah. her pre suffix prefixes correct, <laughs> um, has there's no there's no safe level in terms of a cancer risk. Any amount of alcohol will increase that to to a small extent. But as you, you're very careful, and I think it's a very responsible way to go about doing it as well. That when you're at these lower levels, the risk is tiny, isn't it? It, 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 it is very very small. Yes. Um, but equally, it's interesting you put it the other way around. That in fact, the, the risk is so small, but also stopping drinking completely isn't in some way harming you. It's doing you exactly. a little bit of good. And if uh, if you are somebody who basically been, you know, the, one of the patterns in Northern Europe and Britain in particular, uh, and, and Ireland uh, is is to is to binge drink. And if people are in a habit of binge drinking, sorry, my phone is uh, a habit of binge drinking. Then uh, you know, having one drink, as as many people will know, is is often the you know the precursor to having five to ten. You know, so uh, yeah. if, if you are in that sort of environment, sometimes just saying okay. That's it. Stop. It might be a good strategy for just avoiding those uh, occasions where you end up uh, drinking the sort of weekly allowance <laughs> in, uh, in 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 you know three hours. So <laughs> yeah, uh, that's a lot so of that, yeah, that's, that, that seems to be it's, it's it's a perfectly valid strategy, and you're certainly not doing yourself any harm, and you're definitely not you know by avoiding binge drinking, which has got to be one of the most sort of you know harmful ways to to consume yeah. your. Um, yeah, it's uh, is is a is, is a valid strategy and and one which I think is probably more successful than uh, uh, trying to moderate if you're not mm. that way inclined. Yeah, so I, I think I'm right in thinking that the guidelines are now 14 units for women and 14 units for men in a week is what's <coughs> recommended. And that was only was that last November? Or was about a year ago it changed? I don't uh, think it was that long. January of yeah last year 2017. So it was 2017. Yeah, I mean, there was just quite a lot of there was there's a lot of kind of uh, discussion beforehand. They were kind of known that they were going to be that 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 I believe that was when it was officially kind of put on there. Yeah, because they might confuse folk a little because they flip flopped a bit with this because obviously it used to be 14 and 21, and then they went to the daily um, units, mm -hmm. uh, which were slightly different for men and women. I think that was obviously part and parcel of this the binge drinking, as you mentioned, to try to yes. encourage people that. If you do drink 14 units or well, they used to be 20 units in a week, you didn't hammer them all on a Friday night. Yes. And, um, yeah. you know, in a 10 pinter um, and actually spread it out a little. But now they've, they've gone back. To, and, but interestingly, they've really reduced the limits of men, haven't they? So that's the big thing that's changed in the guidance now is they've really brought men down to yes. a much lower level than it used to be in terms of what they've, you know, what has been the evidence suggests is a safe level or minimal and risk. Yes. Perhaps I should say minimal risk level perhaps is a bigger way to put it. Yeah, exactly. And I think, I, I think, I mean, I think that's probably what has caused, you know, more controversy than anything is that, uh, that, you know, obviously men, uh, uh, are probably more prone to, to, uh, you know, heavy binge drinking than women and, and to have that yeah. sort of, uh, uh, you know, special sort of special status, uh, yeah. uh you know, uh, removed is, is obviously a bit of a blow obviously to, to, uh, men and also the people who supply them with alcohol so uh, <laughs> yeah uh, it certainly it should be a bit of a wake-up call to the blokes but as you say uh, mo mo uh, perhaps the only controversy here is i'm not sure most people would be that bothered i think as mm. you say the controversy is all manufactured by industry um in uh, yeah i think i mean you know i think the reality is that these guidelines are you know any set of gu any guidelines which are meant to apply to the entire population are yes. really a thumb there's not a yeah of course um, 
and you know, so ultimately, yes, you can always raise questions about whether that is the you know the right number for me or the right number for him or her or mm. whatever. But uh, you know, as a basic sort of guideline, and there are any guidelines, people are absolutely within their you know rights to to do what they want. But uh, as a guideline, it's not you know most of the evidence suggests it's not a bad yeah uh, starting point. So yeah. I think I think there's there's a danger really of getting caught up in in discussion or debates about um, you know like is is this road a, a right to be a thirty mile an hour road or should it be a forty mile an hour road? I mean, yeah. in the end we've got to we've got to you know the, the parallel is not exact, but you know we, you can just create a debate. Yeah, I know what you're saying. I think that's kind of one of the things I've talked about a lot on the podcast is that the evidence is kind of when you look at the medical research, it tends to smoosh together thousands and thousands of people, generate certain conclusions and statistics. When you actually then drag that back to individuals, it's not, you know, you can, it gives you some extraordinarily useful guidance, as you say. But um, the individual interpretations always got, you've always got to be careful about that, whether it's a randomized controlled trial for a drug. Or whether it's a safe level of alcohol, you've just got to be a bit kind of wary about. And you know, the, a, a patient came to me and said, "I'm drinking 14 and a half units," mm-hmm. and you know, and was anxious about. You, there's no, you kind of these are fairly they're rough and ready guidance. Yes, the, yeah. these are these yeah. are there are so also, many factors. Yeah, and, and it's also to do, not just obviously our internal sort of physical uh, organism, but also the the uh, situations we tend to get to. Yes, into. I mean, there's yeah. this famous sort of uh, paradox to do with uh, how uh, it actually came up in the newspaper today, which is sort of restated what's been known for a long time, which is that uh, poorer people on average tend to drink less alcohol than yeah. uh, middle-class people. Yeah. And not by and large because they've got less money. Um, and, and yet they suffer more harm from that lower level of alcohol use. And, and so, and this is not because people are sort of genetically different or they're physically different, but because they are in often more tenuous situations in terms of their um you know their, their their daily lives and the possible trouble they can get in and all sorts of different factors mean that um you mm. know different it's not just about us as kind of uh organisms it's also yeah, about yeah. Us as a social uh, uh parts of a social uh sphere so yeah mm. and this men and women thing is obviously there's there's elements of that as well and that men tend to be in slight in different social scenarios and, and women and so different arms can um can result from their um alcohol use and it's uh, yeah she's not just about the fact that uh, they've got different you know chromosomes and yeah digestive systems and what have you. i think that's a really interesting point and one that um many people would um uh, uh many many people would assume that you know there's more harm to poorer people due to alcohol um but that's because they drink more and it's just not the case no, no. I mean, I, you know, I, I, so I don't have the, the statistics at my fingertips, but uh, yeah, it's it's you know. But if you if you live in a, an environment where, um, well, a variety of different social factors are are, are you know the level levels of, of sort of violence and um, t- you know robbery and all sorts of uh, diet and all the all these other factors which can mean that. Um, you know, it exacerbates the harms that come from from alcohol. Um, yeah, you know, they, they all they all link link together. It's not uh, yeah, it's not an isolated uh, issue. Um, all right. So one of the things uh, this is, is there is an interesting aspect on that that I looked at in quite a lot of detail a couple of years ago about minimum unit pricing, which you don't mention in the book actually. 
no, and, no, that's uh, and, and yeah, that's min- one of the things that made me really cross about minimum unit pricing is that the industry made me. I, I swore that I would never drink whiskey ever again, but it's because the whiskey industry <laughs> opposed it vociferously in Scotland. Yeah, and, if, yeah. I, and I think the legal challenge may have finally wound its way through. And it is going to be imp- implemented very soon if it hasn't been yes, already. Yeah, it, was, uh, it was given the okay, I think it was in May or, or so this year. But yeah. uh, yes, it was a, a long old road. To yeah, get they've there. delayed it for years. And for something which showed, and the, the thing that I really liked about minimum unit pricing, and I think any right thinking person, in my view, mm-hmm. should support it, is because it, um, it reduces health inequalities. Because of mm-hmm. that reason of alcohol and in people who are from lower income and, poor, and poorer and more deprived neighborhoods, it, yeah. out, minimum unit pricing is a fabulous intervention to reduce health inequalities. Um, yeah. And actually, there are very few interventions that do that. Um, it's really surprisingly difficult to do. And um, it, it filled me with despair that the alcohol industry had opposed it so viciously. No, it's very sad. And, and I think actually, I mean, as far as I I, I gather I, there can't be many bottles of whiskey which you were actually going to be affected by exactly. the, the uh, uh, pricing. I mean, they, they, if there were, they were the real kind of cooking uh, cooking whiskies. I mean, anything of any any sort of uh, merit would would be over the minimum price. It was really, you know, maybe done at the behest of um, uh, of companies producing stuff, which you know can be. I think it's as cheap as fifteen or sixteen p a, a unit. Um, you know. Which means that if you add it 14, 14 times sixteen, it's it's something like a five, I don't know I can't remember fourteen times sixteen, something like a five or a week or something. Yeah, you, know, you can hit your kind of the, the, the guideline amounts, and it's you know obviously aimed at people who are scraping together the last few pennies they can to buy mm. alcohol. And, you know, there's you don't have to be a, a, a great sort of psychologist or sociologist to realise that the you know who who those sort of people. Oh, you know the, the yeah. people who are desperate to drink and little else. So yeah, it's very. I mean, it, it it seems quite obvious that that's something you know that needs to be uh, somehow um, prevented. Yeah. So Phil, let me ask you what what do you think some of the biggest myths around evidence are, and um, how we could go about kind of the evidence that kind of dis changes them dispute that you know, kind of dis blows those myths out of the water. Ev- evidence about oh oh gosh. Uh, you mean uh, uh, about the you know in the, in the well about individual yeah uh, I, I guess one of the ones I think you picked up from the book was that mm. um you know that alcohol reduces stress oh yes yeah and anxiety yes, I mean well the, 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 there is this yeah I mean anxiety depression I mean you're, you're obviously more uh, uh, in tune with these things but they often go hand in hand and they're kind of two you know two sides of maybe the same thing in in a lot of occasions and you know alcohol is is um you know, linked to an awful, uh, awfully large percentage of, of problems of people with with uh, anxiety and depression, and yet, you know, the people who are and, and all of us have or are likely to have done it in our lives, where we feel anxious or depressed, and the, and we reach for the bottle, and it, it's it's a it's a sort of self medicating um, yeah. mistake. In the in the you know, it, it, we get some immediate kind of uh, euphoria and uh, feeling of, of relief from anxiety, but um, you know statistically speaking you know it's a bad idea because you know ultimately if you carry on sort of uh, trying to overcome your um negative feelings or, or or tension by by drinking alcohol you ultimately end up making them worse and it's a it's a rather tragic uh, thing and it, it's also something which you know if you read the back of a a bottle or a, you see an advertisement for, for alcohol it, you know you could be forgiven for thinking that these things were actually 
there to help you relax or they were there to help you mm. feel happy. But, um, yeah, you know, it, it just doesn't work out that way if you do it, uh, you know, in that sort of uh, utilitarian way. I mean, there's not to deny that there is pleasure to be had from drinking alcohol, but if, if you're actually looking at it as a functional medication to, you know, improve your happiness level or improve your feeling of calm, uh, in any long-term way, you, you, you're barking up the wrong tree, basically. You know, you know you're the GP. But, no, uh, no, I think, and I think you detail the evidence on this really well. That, that, that kind of, you know, that, that something like 75% of adults over, was it 30 or 40, have used it to relieve stress on a regular basis. And, I mean, I find it a bit, de- I find it slightly demoralizing that I see this even on Facebook, or you can, <laughs> and I tend to unfollow those people, I admit that, you know, but I've seen, I've certainly seen plenty of doctors who like to take a picture of themselves at the end of the week, holding up a glass of wine and to emphasize. And there's that kind of really, and it's a really, so there's a dismal message, I think, that alcohol, that this, we reinforce throughout society that alcohol is a, the, the only way to relieve, is, you know, kind of the best way to relieve stress, or it's got this incredibly useful function. When, and all the, and the evidence is very clear that it, um, in the longer run, it does no such thing. Exactly, and I think for men, you know, it's always this thing about yeah, the, the end of the week drink, and women as well, obviously more uh, as well, but also uh, mother, you know, young mothers who are um, being sort of encouraged to drink, uh, you know, to to relieve the stress of, of uh, and strains of motherhood. You know, it is it, definitely a narrative which is you know in there in in the way we think about alcohol and you know i think you know as individuals i suppose we can we can question it but maybe we can also find ways to to uh you know challenge challenge that narrative when when we see it um yeah you know in in the world around us so uh, yeah i think you're right that uh, and things like social media are a very good example of how we often sort of market these these products to one another you know and it's yeah uh, yeah, and doctors and you talk about doctors you only give us a brief paragraph i think at some point saying that we're not very good at spotting alcohol dependence um and actually i think it's much worse than that to be honest we're absolutely shockingly bad at discussing alcohol problems in fact the evidence shows that um we're maybe not we're not as bad at picking up alcohol dependence as we are just picking up hazardous harmful drinking so not quite at that dependence level. So we will pick up a reasonable number of alcohol dependents. The, the people that come in completely rinsed and clearly having 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 a big impact on their health or life. But the levels below that, where people are suffering quite a lot of harm, we are absolutely appalling at it. I, I, I mean, this is yeah. This may be something I can add to future editions. Maybe you can send me your, your <laughs> thoughts and, uh, and research. But uh, yeah, I, I get the impression maybe that uh, doctors are. You know, it, it, it's it's something that you you wouldn't want to sort of go there in terms of questioning people's personal choices and. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I'm I'm not sure what it is. It's, I think it's part of this complex social kind of you know the way it's woven into our social fabric and the views around it still that we people are we there, there's a reticence to ask about alcohol, despite what doctors say and they know we should ask and we could all name alcohol as causing this problem and that problem and we know how it's linked to mental health and you know in a, in a quite astonishing way in terms of the association and I know you talk about the association causation thing a little bit about alcohol and depression, but yet we still don't ask and what we don't do as well is we don't. If we do ask, we don't ask the right things. <laughs> and we, what we should be using is the audit questionnaire, the alcohol use disorders identification test. Um, and we are rubbish at that. But if you compare audit questionnaire versus doctors just in primary care, in general practice, the audit questionnaire smashes us out of the park. We are just just tripe. So if you've got, 
if you've got um in it, and i kind of I, I don't really offer much apology to the doctors listening for that because i can point them to the evidence and i used to look at this quite a bit when, my, when i was doing a lot of substance misuse work that we're really appalling at it um as a profession yeah. What, what strikes me, and I, I'm, I'm a journalist, not a uh, medical man, but uh, I, I wonder, you know, if, if somebody comes, I mean, I think this is maybe part of a mental health sort of squeamishness anyway from, from, from GPs, but uh, I wonder whether, you know, pe- people come in complaining of anxiety and depression, you know, if you just mm. say, well, how much do you drink? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Try and keep it within the guidelines, maybe even try giving it up completely and you know, see me in a yeah. month's time. So tell me if you feel any better. Uh, yeah. It, it, would that, would that, is, or is that too simplistic? Uh, well, I mean, you've, you've cut off a few steps, but I think the kind of, um, I think, you know, if I, I wouldn't say we were squeamish about mental health problems, GPs, we do an awful lot of it. It's a massive part of the daily workload. So I think we're reasonably good at addressing that. And I think um, there are ways, of course, of having, of you know, kind of motivational interviewing, brief interventions where you chat to somebody about alcohol, you introduce the topic, explain to somebody that uh, making them aware of the potential harm and then encouraging them and kind of encouraging them to be make an autonomous decision that, that they, they're in control and they, you know, uh, and making people aware of how they're linked sometimes is a requirement as a doctor to kind of point out that actually there is a link between your anxiety and the alcohol here. There's an interest, actually, if you look at the NICE guidance, and I, I was thinking about this before we came on to chat, that it used to say that you shouldn't treat, and I don't know if it does, I haven't looked at the guidance recently. So the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence, I think is what they're called now, they, 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 they'd like to change slightly every now and again, um, is that you shouldn't prescribe antidepressants to someone who's depressed if they're drinking alcohol above a certain amount. And it used to it used to say that. I don't know if it still says that anymore. So I wouldn't wash to be held to completely to account for it. But that's because it's such a has a strong such a such, such a negative effect cognitively and kind of that kind of on that depression side of things that it's almost pointless prescribing. You get no benefit unless you've got to tackle the alcohol first. Yes. So it, well, it it seems to me to be you know, uh, and and again, I, I'm being possibly rather simplistic about it, but uh, you know, a, a good sort of starting point is to to get people's you know within a sort of low risk drinking bracket i mean whether that's exactly 14 units a week is possibly uh questionable mm. but something where you can say well this is not going to be you know the, the whole you know and once you somebody's consistently managed to do that and then they continue to have problems then you can sort of eliminate yeah alcohol as a, as a significant factor in it but until then there's, yeah there's... i mean i, I think in, in, in reality most doctors don't i don't i'm beholden to that and they don't follow that guidance i don't think about alcohol because it is so complex in terms of mood and alcohol and depression and it's very hard of course if you get depressed you, you're lacking motivation and you have all those negative symptoms associated with depression it's very hard to do something like tackle your alcohol as well so there's almost a bit of a you know, there comes a bit of a chicken and egg situation. You have to try to break the cycle somehow. Um, but I mean, the the whole topic of prescription of antidepressants is another, you know, hmm. obviously yes, a can, no, of, not, can, I, I, can I, of worms, I, which I, we perhaps I, I, won't I, go into. <laughs> um, I've taken I'm, on quite a lot. I always always have to sort of uh, at some point at some point draw a, a, a yeah. boundary at which I can't. I, yeah. I, I don't. One of one of the things you mentioned was about kind of dry January and how you thought in terms of people's. I and mean, you mentioned this is a little bit about. Um, your version of groupthink, which is group drink, you know, the Orwellian sort of groupthink from 1984, that there are these sort of attitudes towards drinking. And 
Do you think that that's changed, shifted a little since you first wrote this book? Because I know you've updated it, but the kind of like the dry January thing seems to have caught on a little bit more. Yes, yeah, maybe that is worth revisiting. I think, yeah, I think there, there quite possibly is, at least within a, a, a you know, a, a group of uh, sort of health conscious people, a, a little bit more acceptance of it. I would be surprised if, you know, the, the attitude, you know, the, the dog and doc is sort of, you know, radically <laughs> different yes. this year from five four or five years ago whenever I wrote it. But um Yeah. Uh yeah, I think it's something that can can change. And I think, you know, I I'm although there's sort of uh you know these these uh sober sprints as they're called are not uh, are not the, the answer. I think that they can if you look at uh you know harmful drinking or even dependent drinking as part of a kind of learning pro a learning problem, we've kind of learned the wrong answer to our problems whether it's anxiety and depression or social anxiety or whatever or social or our social mm. needs uh to to educate ourselves by spending you know a period of time whether it's a month or a week or a day or whatever to try and live without it and realize maybe you know actually the costs outweigh the the benefits yeah uh, you know, should we ever start to develop more serious problems with our drinking we can look back to that month and say hey that was that was okay you know so yeah um i think there's a lot to be said for it and i think may, and and to to possibly put people in these situations where they realize that um you know their friends and uh, you know will not necessarily uh slap them on the back and say you know good on you they might actually try and push a drink in your hand yeah and, uh you know to to find ways to tackle that situation whether it's uh, just through being uh sort of stubborn or removing yourself from the situation or drinking something with this stealth drinking or stealth not drinking as I call it, uh, where you drink something which looks a bit like, you know, red wine, maybe it's Ribena or whatever, you know, some sort of red yeah. drink in a, in a wine glass or, or drink a, uh, a alcohol free beer, uh, and realize that actually a lot of this is about wearing a, wearing a badge, if you like wearing a, you know, being part of a group that, you know, bought wearing a, a paper hat at Christmas, you know, if you don't wear the paper hat at Christmas, you're not really <laughs> joining in. Yeah, it's that group uh, drink but approach. The paper yeah. hat, wearing a paper hat at Christmas doesn't make you happy. It, it makes you part of a group. Yeah. And, um, you know, the, having a drink or looking like you're having a drink, is a, there's a lot of it which is about that uh, feeling of being part of a group, which is a, a, an important thing for us, but it doesn't rely on, you know, logging a particular substance. It's about... Yeah joining in and you know we can join in without uh you know with and, and, in, and, and, in and yeah and i know you mentioned this evidence at the start that you know that um you know that people who are just who are given about placebo drinking and how they will often act and be kind of relatively euphoric and kind of almost acting a bit drunk and you know, it's quite complex some of the studies around that in terms of how people behave and picking them out but there is definitely being part of the group that's the um which is a key thing absolutely and and being given you know having Having the signal, I think the other the, the one, uh, you know, apart from this party hats thing was, you know, if you go to a conference and I've been to a few conferences and I've arrived, you know, as a journalist, sort of not properly sort of equipped and you show up and you've not got a name badge on and people will, you know, look at you a, a little bit askance and wonder what, what's <laughs> this guy doing there. And then finally somebody shows up with a, uh, a name badge and sticks it on. And then suddenly, you know, you're, you're part of the gang. Everybody wants to know what you're up to. And it, it's, yeah. it's, you know, again, it's not because it's simply being part of this group and being obviously there to participate. Yeah. Um, and we can, you know, find ways around this this problem which don't involve, you know, necessarily consuming something which 
we don't want to consume or, or, or maybe we want to consume it, but we realize it's not to, it's not something we, um, is going to do us any good. So yeah. there are solutions out there, I think, to, to what are essentially social problems yeah. rather than uh, alcohol problems. It's funny how sometimes these things can shift. I, I'm, I, I think my understanding is that some of the evidence suggests that some younger generations are now not binging in quite the same way as perhaps, I mean, I'm obviously in my mid-40s and perhaps we did in the 90s and that kind of lad culture that was very prevalent at that time. The um, And I get the impression some of those younger generations aren't binging quite as much. That's an encouraging sign. Um, hopefully yes. yeah yeah and i think i think a lot of it my, my you know nobody really knows what these things is it's obviously a, a, a mass effect um but my take on it it really is that uh technologies like facebook like uh dating apps and uh twitter and, and instagram oops, sorry I'm, I'm trying to sound like i'm down with the kids but anyway the, all these <laughs> all these sort of apps and stuff uh, are giving people the opportunity to network and meet people and and uh you know show off and be silly and all these sort of things which uh we uh, you know our generation let's say if did by going down the pub and you know yeah. staggering around with a pint and um yeah and so these these needs and genuine needs to to be part of gangs and groups and make friends that are being fulfilled in other ways and and actually people are look i think are, <laughs> again I i'm not a mind reader and there needs to be proper research on this but i suspect that the younger generation sort of look at a pub and think well, do we really have to do that you know <laughs> why yeah, can't yeah. i just you know yeah. there, are, there are simpler and cheaper alternatives out there yeah yeah and i think that's well i mean and also yeah you only got to have as i mentioned that you know, talk about hangover and some of the adverse consequences of binge drinking and they are significant whether it's getting injured or getting from blokes you know, men getting into fights and A&E's, the risk of assault or in, physical injury is just magnified several fold um, when you're binge drinking. And, Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know what, I, again, I, I should really make a sort of uh, a cheat sheet for myself. But I mean, the, the, I think it's something like 70% of people in prison, you know, were, were mm. drunk or, or have alcohol in their bloodstream when they committed their offence. You know, this is for people you know, within a certain social sphere and a certain situations, you can get yourself in a whole lot of trouble, which, you know, won't go away overnight. And, um, uh, you know, these aren't necessarily sort of inherently bad people. You know, these are people who, who are in, you know, drunk in the wrong situation. And uh, it's a very, uh, very sad, really, that, uh, you know, that, that lives are ruined in this way. So, But, yeah. there, you know... <laughs> The good thing is there is a fairly there is an affordable solution to hand, which is is maybe to try and uh, try and cut down the drinking. I think certainly anyone listening, like kind of analysing your own relationship with alcohol is going to be part of that, isn't it? And kind of really thinking. And I, I kind of I try to certainly as a GP, I try to steer people towards these audit questionnaires because they ask some you know revealing questions about that can make you think. You know, have you ever been injured? Have you have you been injured in the last twelve months? Little things they give you little nudges, and that audit questionnaire is very well received by you know very well established, I should say, by the World Health Organization is a really good way mm -hmm. to. But I guess the other I, thing, I mean, I'm, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I, I'm I'm interested to hear that it's a, a useful tool for yourselves i mean i have to say from as a as an outsider and i say i'm not i'm a i'm sort of consumer of uh of medical attention rather than a provider but um i think some of the confusion is possibly not to do with is, is to do with the fact that we tend to think of alcohol and alcoholism as a kind of binary yes where you are or you aren't and people obviously you know for their own peace of mind prefer to say well i've got no problem with alcohol i just drink an awful yeah. lot uh 
yeah. and uh, and people can carry on doing that until things get well and truly out of hand. And uh, you know, if if unfortunately, you know, the questionnaires in the in your surgery uh, will not change the attitudes which sort of walk in the door, um, which is that you know, tell me I don't have a problem, or tell me I do have a problem, and then you're yeah. kind of put into a box and then you've got you know you can either walk walk with your head held high and nothing to worry about or you know with your head in your hands thinking oh my god you know i'm one of them you know so it's yeah it, but that that needs to change it's, it's a whole it's a spectral a spectrum of experiences spectrum of of uh yeah um uh, responses to alcohol we've had and and histories with alcohol we've had and uh we don't just fit into sort of neat boxes um yeah yeah, and we can move up and down this spectrum depending on how we uh, choose to to uh, have our uh, have our relationship with alcohol in the future. So it's not a fixed yeah. category that we're in. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I think that binary that binary thing is a real problem. That people go, "Well, I'm not an alcoholic, therefore I have no problem with alcohol whatsoever." is a is a big challenge for people to get over. And as we've talked about already, there is there's no question that there's a link between alcohol. Uh, it causes some problems whether that's physical mental health social and there's a dose dependent relationship almost in most people so the the more you drink the more likely to are to have problems with so, you know some you know kind of caveats around that in terms of individual responses and depending on where you live and how you live and other things are different but um and as you say therefore if it's a dose dependent relationship all you got to do is decrease the dose and you're almost certainly reducing your risk and that's uh, and that just exists it's a nice smooth curve all the way across it's, it's a straight line more or less in that regard if you reduce it and you move yourself down shift yourself down the line you will have less harm and probably yes. feel better in whichever way you're not feeling yeah. good at the moment I, I've spoken to many a number of people you know, readers of my book and and uh, who probably may have actually had no particular interest in in this subject before who actually had a you know had a go at changing their, mm. their uh, uh drinking just to see what happens and they they almost invariably say they feel a lot better and these, yeah. are, these are not people who you would you know you know would probably i don't know whether they'd come up on the audit test probably wouldn't really register but they're simply well, you know, in the, that yeah the, the, the audit test is pretty good it's got pretty good sensitivity specificity it, it probably would come up that they would be in the middle ground of that harmful drinking how hazardous drinking you would pick yes. that up and so well, actually at least, at least, maybe what i'm saying is probably they wouldn't necessarily have, have thought that was a problem thought, okay, mm. fine. <laughs> well i have to say it'd be it would be extraordinarily unusual if the gp had actually done one as well because they are it's so under so i, I had a student that I, I work at a medical school as well and i had a student that looked into this recently as part of a project um about how many how many patients had had an audit questionnaire done as part of their assessment of their alcohol and um, the, answer, the problem we had was that it came, the answer came out at zero <laughs> when they looked at the practice. They, they couldn't find anybody who had had the audit questionnaire done. A lot of people who had had their number of units of alcohol per week noted down, because that's something doctors like to do. They like to reduce it to a single number. But, of course, people's relationship with alcohol is a little bit more complicated than that, than just number of units per week as well. Um, but the, uh, it's just it's very rarely done, which is why I kind of I try to encourage people to go away and do it. And I, I get my students to do it in the lecture. And actually, and it just makes it gives people a lot of um, it gives people a little bit of an opportunity to, you know, think about a couple of different areas, how alcohol yes. impacts on them. No, that's that's interesting. Yeah, maybe there's maybe there is, uh, you know, um, something to be said, you know, I, I, I don't know, at university or, or you yeah. know, 
asking your students, I mean, that is a good time to, to sort of catch at least a that sort of segment of society and make and say, yeah. you know, this is this is this is the sort of multivariate uh, issue that we're talking about, and just plant it in people's heads. It isn't, you know, it, it, you know as we talked about the guidelines earlier, this is not just about you know this this rather crude kind of limit um yeah limit. yeah absolutely i know well interesting at the time of recording we're it's freshers week in a couple of weeks at the university so there will be um significant alcohol getting consumed in a binge like fashion no doubt in a, in a couple of weeks um and i don't know what the university which, which university are you at <laughs> i'm at lancaster university lancaster. okay because so, I, I actually posted a story or saw a story in the times uh, over the weekend about whole university saying that their freshers week is sort of uh rather less sort of uh, alcohol soak than uh, it was yeah. in the past i don't know uh, well that encourages me I, I also i have i know there are all sorts of problems with coffee culture in terms of you know multinationals and corporate responsibility mm. but i sometimes have hold out some hope that um coffee may, may be a lesser evil in terms of encouraging people to uh, socialize and get together mm. in groups without the use of alcohol um, yes. and that that's a kind of a change we've seen in the last sort of five ten years as well yes yeah, I mean, uh, I, I I have to agree. I mean, I you know, there's, there's there is there's also tea. You know, there's a <laughs> yes, hot, hot beverage for the future. <laughs> yeah, uh, that might be the answer to alcohol. Yeah, hot yeah, beverages. Yeah, but I, I think I actually think that uh, probably uh, you know the thing the things which are answering the, the needs the social needs of people, and maybe there are, obviously there are issues to do with those. Are are probably you know these social medias and people. Um, at least it obviously depends on, on what kind of social contact people want, but at least in terms of the sort of networking type of contact, which uh, yeah. is what a lot of binge drinking is about. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. They, they, they were they kind of nip, nip that problem in the bud without, without maybe even a need to, uh, to address it sort of uh, directly. But, um, yeah. We'll so, see. <laughs> so one thing you said right at the beginning of the book, which I liked is that there's this kind of assumption that to be, um, you have to drink alcohol in order to be happy and to have that. So, but actually mm. most people who are happy are, are not, they're not euphoric <laughs> all yes. the time. They're just, they tend to be resilient if anything. Yes. And that's what really where sort of true and long-term happiness lies. That was a really yeah. interesting point that actually people who then drink think they're being happy. But actually what they're experiencing is a transient euphoria, which isn't the same thing at all. And in fact, alcohol undermines their ability to be resilient and to yes. be happy in the long run. Yes, exactly. I think that's, that's you know, it sort of feeds into what we were talking about before with the uh, issues of, of uh, anxiety and depression. I think, you know, the idea that we, uh, if we feel anxious and depressed, we need to be euphoric. Uh, is not the you know mm. is not the answer. We need to recognise, as you say, the difference between uh, a temporary sort of euphoria and dealing with what is uh, you know uh, an issue of uh, sort of brain health, mental you know mental resilience, as you you, yeah. you, you mentioned, and and see that the one is not the same as uh, the the, the, the formula. That the euphoria is not a solution uh, in the same way that you know maybe. Uh, techniques to improve our mental resilience are uh you know and, and yeah mm. so that's a, a useful distinction i think listen phil that's been fabulous what I, what i must ask you is to where can we where can listeners find you where can they find your book uh well i'm uh, my name is phil kane c-a-i-n like uh, the bad guy in the bible although <laughs> i have to say that's a uh, <laughs> bad press uh, my website is philkane.com um, and if you if you Google the name of the book, which is Alcohol Companion, um, 
then uh, yeah, it should come up either either on my website or on um, uh, Amazon. I, I also run, you know, I'm also on Twitter and all that sort of stuff, and produce stories and uh, materials which kind of back up and and expand on some of the points I make in the book. So yeah. feel free to follow me and and get on my email email list and all that stuff. Yeah, I think anyone's got any interest in alcohol and, you know, whether it's personal or for professional or other reasons, there's a tremendous amount of useful information in the book and on the website. It's, it's been really grand. Um, so, um, Phil, uh, I'm so thank you so much. It's been really fascinating and I've really enjoyed chatting to you. Yeah, likewise, likewise. Many thanks. OK, well, thanks for listening. You can find the full show notes at www.blocology.io. Uh, You can also sign up for the newsletter, the Journal of Blocology at www.blocology.io forward slash journal. Sign up and I'll make sure that I send you the Healthy Bloke Action Plan. It would be enormously helpful if you've enjoyed the show, if you've got anything out of it, if you could pop over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review or just leave a rating, that would be incredibly helpful. And any feedback is very welcome. And so you can leave comments, send email or make contact via Twitter, Facebook and the usual social media channels, all of which can be found at blocology.io. Thanks again. Mm-hmm.